The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, sponsored by Narconon Ojai. Hello, and welcome to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel, and this is episode number 187. The coronavirus is still happening, so we sincerely hope that you are getting into treatment and getting your loved ones into treatment. When a person is addicted to drugs, the myriad of choices of treatments can be overwhelming. Narconon Ojai is a residential treatment facility that addresses the physical, mental, and spiritual aspects of addiction with a proven, evidence-based, step-by-step program designed to free those trapped by addiction. For more information, call 1-866-231-5924. It's an anonymous phone call. They're there to help. 1-866-231-5924. Today we'll be talking to a gentleman named Duke Rumley. Duke is a former alcoholic and has been sober since 1989. When he went to music concerts, he found that the culture, if you will, was kind of geared toward drugs and alcohol. He went to see his favorite band, The Grateful Dead. He had seen them 15 times while using drugs and drinking. This time it was different, and he felt awkward and felt like he didn't fit in. He was with old friends, and they were kind and letting him hang with them, but he felt he was the odd man out. He found a sober support group called the Wharf Rats, and they held meetings at the intermission of the concert, and so he connected up with them. He has young adults as his children. They're not really children anymore, 20 and 17, and he doesn't want them getting drunk or high. So he formulated an organization to help them stay sober. And we're going to have him tell us more about his story and also about his organization. So without further ado, let's talk to Duke Rumley. So Duke Rumley, thank you so much for being on the podcast and being willing to tell your story. I think you have a very unique perspective in terms of what you're doing now. So thank you being, thank you for being willing to share all the dirty details. Right on. I think this is my first podcast, so I am super pumped to be able to do this, Joni. So thank you. Well, well, welcome. You know, sometimes I have people and they say, oh, I'm kind of nervous and I kind of go, you know, I'm not a reporter. I'm right. really easygoing. I'm not going to ask you something that's hard, like when did you stop beating your wife? I don't right. do that. <laughs> I get to talk about me. Oh, you get to talk about me and right. you, and specifically, I I know that you have a history with alcohol. I don't know if that included drugs, but I want you to go back to the beginning and tell us your history and how you got started and all that. Right on. Well, um, I I do. I have a. Um, a very intense um, history with drugs and alcohol. So, uh, you know, I think that's what happened. I very first um, time I was able to drink as much as I wanted. I was a, I believe a sophomore in high school. Um, we went to a college party and they had a keg and um, I had two beers and I went from being the scared uh, sophomore in high school to being a Notre Dame student. And then I had two more beers and I was on the Notre Dame football team and then two more beers. And I was, uh, 
the starting fullback at Notre Dame. And, um, and that's kind of how it escalated. And then I blacked out. And then I went to school on Monday and was told all these horrible stories. I was told I went around the room and told everyone I loved them, which uh, was hard to believe until I saw somebody else do it. And then I got into a beer chugging contest. I went outside, threw up, and then um, just horrible, horrible nights, right? No, no upside to this. But something happened in my mind where I became okay. I can't really explain exactly what it was, but something shifted. And I went from being kind of a scared kid to being cool. And there was this intense experience that kind of rewired my brain that I couldn't say no to uh, drugs and alcohol kind of going forward from that. And it was kind of like my well, wait, how session. old were you then? How old were you then when you so started? I think I was 17, 16, 16 or okay. 17 years old. Um, so that's kind of what happened to the brain. And then the behaviors, you know, went from being a once a month to every weekend to um, a couple times during the week. Um, and my parents spotted pretty early on. I mean, uh, I just don't think blackout drinking is normal. And, you know, especially when you have a young kid who is well below the age of being able to drink. Um, so they took me to AA pretty early on and they didn't know much about AA. They just more like took me to a, I just remember being super hungover, not being able to see across the room and none of it made sense to me. Actually, my parents at first took me to church. They thought church would cure this. So I, I would be at Saturday morning mass at 6.30 in the morning, having to go outside and throw up in the bushes and then come back into church. So um, that didn't cure my alcoholism. Um, so they took me to AA and for about four years, I would go to a couple of AA meetings per year to get the heat off. That was kind of, and I just thought there might be some other way, right? I just needed to win the lotto or I needed, um, just the bad luck to stop. Um, but I had this mind that had been totally altered um, from this intense experience with alcohol at a young age. Um, and so I ended up attending the University of Arizona. I talked to my parents into letting me leave Indiana. And uh, I left and brought a bunch of uh, LSD with me out to Tucson and um, was out having uh, a, a new experience. And um, join a fraternity when they told me not to join a fraternity. I mean, I was such a little shit. I mean, the stuff that they told me <laughs> to, uh, like, I have kids now. And if my kids did what I've done, I think I would murder them. So I completely understand. I complete. we went through our teenagers and, you know, no, you cannot drink and drive, you know, and, and we'd look at each other and go, yeah, but I did it. Yeah, I did it. But that, that doesn't matter. They can't do it. Right. Duke was, was LSD wasn't your first drug, was it? No, I would say when alcohol, marijuana, um, probably cocaine and then LSD. So this was all like, I would a bit of a late bloomer. It felt like to me, like I didn't start drinking until really like my sophomore year of high school and had this intense experience. And then just the floodgates kind of opened and, um, you so know, you took for, LSD to Arizona. That's where you were. Well, I, yes. So story when I interrupted you. Right. Um, and uh, so long story short, go out to the University of Arizona. Parents are like, hey, just get good grades. Don't join a fraternity your first first semester. 
uh, join this fraternity. Um, Nogales, Mexico is 30 miles away where you don't need an ID. Um, a bunch of the uh, my friends who were in the fraternity were into the Grateful Dead, started going to Grateful Dead concerts. And uh, th those were kind of my priorities. Grateful Dead concerts and going down to Nogales. And um, so I say I attended the University of Arizona and not graduated. So um, my sophomore year, I was down there for a Super Bowl party. And uh, or we drove down to Nogales the night of Super Bowl weekend, Friday night. And one of my fraternity brothers had fake $20 bills, which he didn't tell us about. And um, I blacked out in Nogales with this group of people. And at the end of the night, we're walking back to the bar and I have a bit of a brownout. I remember bits and pieces of the night. So not all of it, but I do remember elbowing him and say, let's go back to my favorite bar before we go back to the car. And the federales were waiting for us. So we walk in and, you know, he is being accused of uh, counterfeiting and I have no idea what's going on. I think this is hilarious. This would be such a great story. We get back to school and I'm watching my other fraternity brothers walk in and walk out. Like as soon as they see what's going on, they're out of there. So long story short, I mean, there's a thousand stories in there, but we get arrested, put in jail. I don't speak any Spanish. And um, on Sunday, we get a call from the U.S. consulate. So we've now been in jail for 48 hours, missed the Super okay. Bowl. Okay. I just have to say, Duke, I have had many people on this podcast who have been arrested for drug-related activities. You are the first arrested for counterfeiting. I'm just right, well, saying. I'm just making a point. There's more first coming. You wait. So... Um, U.S. consulate calls. They end up calling my parents. I get mom has to fly down. Mom starts negotiating my release. It's now like Wednesday. So we get thrown in jail Friday. Six days later, they're like, if you want your son back, it'll be 25,000 bucks. Because you're over the says, border. You're in Mexico, right? Yes, we are I, in I, Mexico. my ignorance, but I got it now. Yes. Wow. And okay. mom says, keep them. Mom says, I got four other kids at home. This one's been a pain in my butt. So the next day they come back to her and counter at 4,000 bucks. So that's my trade in value. Oh, so if I ever get drunk, she can take me back to Nogales, Mexico and get her four grand back. So, um, so I get deported and banned from the country of Mexico for 12 years. So I don't know how many people, you know, have been banned from Mexico. Nobody. That's right? a first two. Good. Another first, Duke. Okay. So that wall we're building is to keep me out of Mexico. Oh. Yes. <laughs> okay. So mom says, fly straight. I know it really wasn't your fault, but if you hadn't been drunk, this wouldn't have happened. So mom's got some good um, non-codependent streak in her. So, so she leaves. And the following weekend, there's a party in San Diego. And I can't go because I've had this week of school to catch up on. And I'm so appreciative. My parents just bailed me out of jail. But I see a keg get rolled onto this RV. And this happens, right? My mind changes its own mind. I've got this blank spot back there. And it's like, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. And I have to say yes. 
So I get on the RV, we go to San Diego, we have a fun weekend. I go out drinking with a different fraternity brother on Saturday night. Um, and we come back to the RV Sunday morning and it's gone. They've left us They're They're heading back to Tucson. So we go out drinking that night. We're going to take a, um, I think a Greyhound bus home in the morning, but that night he realizes he can use his visa and fly in Southwest. So in the middle of a blackout, we switch planes. I come out of this blackout and there's alarms going off. I'm looking in the mirror, there's a joint in my hand and I'm thinking I'm on a Greyhound bus, but I'm actually on an airplane and I don't know what's going on. And I open up the door and look out and there are 30 rows of people turned around staring. Why is there alarms going off on this airplane? And why does this airplane smell of smoke? And so I not only are off. you smoking on a plane, Duke, yes. you're smoking marijuana on a so, plane. Yeah. Uh, Another first for yes. the podcast, ladies right. and gentlemen. So that is me not drinking. Mom says fly straight. I totally agree. I have this brain that's going to change its own mind. Once I take that drink, I have an abnormal reaction, which is I get thirstier, which I thought was normal, but it turns out it's not normal because I've had this discussion with my mom and she's like, look, why can't you just have two beers? And I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, I have two drinks. I know I catch that buzz. I know it's time to stop. And I'm like, for me, it feels like I'm in first gear going too fast. And I need to put the clutch in and put it into second gear. And then I feel like I need to go to third gear, fourth gear, invisible. And um, I just think that's kind of the different mentality of a uh, addict alcoholic versus a normal drinker. And um, it's pretty basic, but that is kind of what I, I've come to realize what I have. So um, long story short, um, they didn't arrest me. The, the, the cook, the flight attendant had the pilot come down and speak to me. And I was so drunk. He sounded like a parent in Snoopy's, you know, wah, 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 wah. I couldn't understand what he was saying, but I kept saying it won't happen again. So sorry. I wasn't even denying it. And um, we flew to LA, changed planes and never said anything. And next thing you know, I am uh, back in Tucson with another crazy Duke story. So um, so a year later, um, my parents, uh, took me to treatment and, um, they took me on New Year's Eve of 88 and I told them nobody gets sober on New Year's Eve. So they asked me not to drink the month of January to prove I wasn't an alcoholic and I lasted all of eight days. So anyone who stays sober longer than eight days, I think has got some type of power in them. So I think that's kind of the trick is. How do we tap into some type of uh, power that helps us get through this kind of mental compulsion? So I went to treatment May 15th of 89. I've been sober what, ever since. What kind since. of treatment, Duke? What kind of treatment? So I went to a place um, in Indiana called the Renaissance, and it was kind of drug and alcohol treatment, um, talk therapy. Um, after eight days, they said I had a psychic ch shift and I could leave. Um, so treatment was different back then. And I, um, was still, you know, completely obsessed with alcohol and drugs. I mean, I was so far from being, 
on the other side of this thing. Um, but um, I knew about Alcoholics Anonymous and uh, a buddy took me there and um, actually my parents took me there and had a good enough experience that I kept coming back. And then at three months sober, I moved to Louisville, Kentucky. And I really think the spirit of AA kind of grabbed me more than anything else. So I didn't have a car the first two years of my sobriety and people were willing to pick me up and take me to meetings. And I recognized in my brain that I was still like geo mapping where all the bars were, you know, this is even at nine months sober, you know, you drive by and your head turns and there's nothing you can do about it. Right. It's like, Oh, remember where this bar is just in case this AA thing doesn't work out. Like this bar looks shady. You can get drugs there. This bar looks really fancy. You can meet women there, you know, just kind of how the brain works. And it just took um, a period of time and, uh, you know, good sponsorship and willingness to try the steps. But I also had a very loving, supportive family that was very helpful. Um, There was a sober support group at Grateful Dead concerts called Warfrats, and that helped make sobriety seem really cool. So when I was so young um, and just kind of this idea like, oh, shit, there's other people like me who I'm not the only one at this dead show who isn't high on drugs or alcohol right now. Um, and that was so mind blowing. I'm I'm I got that. And I understand that uh, just to, I want to clarify, you know, oftentimes when we talk to someone who's an addict, there's a huge aha moment. And I'm not saying you didn't have, you, you have to have that. I don't think you necessarily do, but was there a moment when you went, oh, I need to do something about this or my life is not going to end up very well? Was there a moment that that happened with you? Yeah, I think kind of step zero is that aha moment of, you know, um, life might be okay without drugs and alcohol. That was as far as I could really get walking into treatment, just like I have flunked out of numerous colleges. I'm the black sheep of the family. Um, you know, the story of my arrest in Mexico was all over South Bend. And, um, that was kind of one of the aha big moments is like, you know, life might be okay without it because up to that point, that was all I was wrapped up into. I mean, I had Budweiser vans. I had went to treatment in the Strohs t-shirt and, um, you know, I was, um, known, for kind of a guy who always had weed and just that moment of like, man, you know, I have failed at this thing called life and um, maybe it'll be okay without it was as far as I could really see and didn't picture it more than like six weeks. Like, yeah, I might be able to stay sober a month, but no more than two or three at the most. And here it is 31 years later. Exactly. And very well done to you for being 31 years sober. Was there a moment during your, um, and maybe it was the concert, I don't know, but was there a moment when you realized that, you know, you could live without alcohol? Um, you know, it was probably like six or nine months into sobriety. It felt like I came out of a blackout and I was like four months sober. You know, I think that, probably part of it was detoxing part of it. Everything was so new and felt so weird and so raw. And, um, 
and I, I guess maybe picking up that kind of like that mind nine month chip thinking, you know, I might be able to get like maybe a year. And, you know, I was 21 when this happened. So um, what, what helped me was when I was living in Louisville, Kentucky at that time, there was a bunch of adolescent treatment centers. So being 21 in AA wasn't young. You know, there was a bunch of 16, 17 year old kids running around and 18 and 19 year olds who had, you know, a couple of years of sobriety. And that was kind of a great, um, moment of like, oh, you know, that that self-pity card of you're too young was taken away when you kind of show up and, you know, you're not the youngest kid there. Wow. That's amazing that there were ones that young with years of sobriety behind them. And there was a thing called Young People in AA and they had uh, conferences and we uh, would go to a conference. We went, I think we went to Cleveland for the international one as a group and it was mind blowing. That, And then we went to New York City and it was at Times Square and the killer hotel there and um, just being around like 7,000, uh, 8,000 other kids um, and just like, wow, you know, like we got to figure it out. Like if you can get this disease in your rear view mirror, um, you can have a ton of fun. Yep. And having a good time without the alcohol or the drugs. I think so often when someone is addicted to alcohol and drugs, they think that that's what you need if you're going to enjoy life. And the truth of the matter is when you stop, you can just enjoy life without it. So Duke, you're married, obviously, or, or you, you were married because you have two kids. Correct. Keep going with your story. Okay. So end up graduating from college, learned you could do that sober. Going to college sober is like cheating. I mean, it's definitely, um, at least it was for me. And um, got a job out of college, trading NASDAQ stocks. Did that for a year until I put in some wrong orders and got fired and then ended up uh, moving to little, uh, to Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Um, and I've moved a few times in my sobriety and I just know how awkward and hard that can be. And, um, you know, I think kind of getting back to the fun part of recovery, right? I mean, the downside is little, but the downside is life can be awkward at times. And that's why we enjoy alcohol and drugs just to kind of help us through, you know, the first 10 minutes at a party where you don't know anybody, right? Um, yeah. And if you can get through that first 10 minutes, then it's not such a big deal. But we had, you know, just kind of understanding and, um, you know, at three months sober, I was at Grateful Dead shows and then six months and nine months with um, buddies from high school. And what I learned was it was funner to go with sober friends. Um, actually, it's not true. It was fun to go with both groups, but it was sometimes good to have a sober wingman with you. Um, but, and I wouldn't recommend that to everyone, but it was really important to me because I think if I would have stayed home and been miserable, I would have used. So, um, Makes sense. you know, I think there's, you know, learning how to have fun in sobriety, um, because there's so much stigma attached to that. Um, and I think that's why most people do relapse, right? They're miserable in sobriety. They don't know how to have fun. They think the fun will never come back if they're sober and they go back to, to using. You are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com 
or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com, or call us at 727-314-7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. For more information on our sponsor, Narconon Ojai, visit their website at narcononojai.org. That's N-A-R-C-O-N-O-N-O-J-A-I.org. Or call 1-866-231-5924. That's 1-866-231-5924. Sometimes, the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. I think you're right. And I think I was very interested to read, you mentioned it already, about the group The War Frats. Yeah. And, you know, I think that a group like that, it's valuable. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> no, it's true. I mean, it was mind-blowing that, okay, where I want to be, there was recovery already there, Right. And as somebody so new, I didn't know how to create it, but it was already there. And that was so helpful. Um, so yes, uh, end up getting married, having kids, um, you know, stay sober through all of that. And kind of fast forward, uh, my two and a half years ago, my daughter is texting me from a concert venue saying um, she needs to take an Uber home. And being a concerned parent, I'm like, how much is that going to cost me? But my second thought was, what's going on? And she finally, after coming back and forth, said, look, everyone I came here with took ecstasy and I don't feel safe going home with them. And I've worked in the recovery field and have been sober long enough to know that my kids are at risk of overdosing and dying. They are at this 16 and 20 year old range we lose roughly 70,000 people to drug overdose every year, another 80 to 90,000 to alcohol deaths per year. Um, I live in Colorado, which is a very pro-drug state. They yeah. like electronic dance music. Um, that can be a very high uh, intense drug culture. Um, so uh, we started this nonprofit called Sober AF Entertainment. You know what AF stands for? Sober, wait a minute. Sober AF Entertainment. And fun? Yes. Really? No. It can mean a lot of things. (laughs) Sober and fun entertainment, that works though. What does it mean? No, no, no. So it technically doesn't stand for anything, the AF part. Because it's really sober entertainment, but nobody would show up if it was called sober entertainment. So um, an AF typically means sober and F entertainment or sober as F that's funny. I don't even know my own name anymore. Um, so, but it can mean a lot of things. It can mean sober. What does that mean? Sober as F. I don't, I don't know. Sober as fuck entertainment. Ah, 
Okay, got it. So <laughs> it's a good sign that doesn't connect with you, right? It means, it means your your mind is not in the gutter. It's good. So anyways, yeah, we're sober <laughs> AF entertainment. Okay. Um, and uh, we have. Duke, a host... I have a question. I have sure. a question. I, I do. I definitely want to hear everything about your organization. I think it's. I think it's fabulous. Did you ever ask your daughter in an environment like she was in, and all of her friends that she's with are doing ecstasy? Why did she say no? Do you know? I'm curious. I want to ask her. Right. It's a great question, um, because she is a. Uh, We've had a couple of issues more with alcohol along the way. Um, and it wasn't like my issues where it became repetitive, but it was about once every two years, you know, uh, I got called um, in uh, I think our senior year of high school that uh, she had been overserved and her friends called me like, hey, can you come get Jordan? She's having a tough time and showed up. And um, so, you know, it's not like she hasn't partaken and I know she had smoked some weed up to that point and was just really begging my kids like, look, just wait till you're 21, right? Let your brain kind of connect a little bit. So why did she say no to ecstasy? I don't know. I, it's a great question. I'll ask her. Um, I would say, well, done, obviously well done her, yeah. but also well done you. Um, you know, we talk about, we talk a lot about on the podcast, how when a child gets addicted, the parent automatically thinks you know, it's something that they did wrong. And I don't think that that's true, but I do have an idea that you probably did a lot right with your kids. Joni, thank you for saying that. I totally have kind of like two rules in the house, right? And I said, the house is sober and which means no drugs, no alcohol, and nobody's getting pregnant. So those are kind of the two rules. And if you can follow those rules, you can go a long way in, in this house. And, um, so with my son, he started hosting uh, a poker night, like his freshman year of high school. And the kids all knew, like, this house is sober AF, right? We'll have Red Bull. They can vape if they want outside, but they can play poker until three in the morning. But everyone has to stay sober. And I think, you know, being kind of with my personality, being so out there with my own A, recovery, and B, belief that kids shouldn't get high or drunk until they're 21, um, really impacted his, his life, but also his buddy's life. So, um, I, that's awesome. That's, that's so awesome. And I'm hoping that if parents are listening and they have young kids who, you know, are experimenting or who already have experimented to put in rules like that and have them be in the house and doing something that's fun, but doesn't include alcohol or drugs. I just, I think that's huge. So, Okay, so again, I took you back, but you started S-A-F-E, Sober yes. A-F Entertainment. Yes. What did, how did you start? What did you do? So we had this moment with my daughter. I'm 30, I'm 29 years sober, I think, at the time. And basically it was that magic wand moment. Like, what would you do if it was like unlimited resources? And I had worked in the treatment field as a marketer for 10 years. And I just know we're really good at getting them sober up until day 28, right? And then they leave treatment and uh, there's a lot of relapse, a ridiculous high um, amount of overdose deaths right out of treatment. And, um, and if you can get them to like year one, you know, the relapse rate really falls off. So- yep. 
we're trying to do the impossible. We're trying to make a sobriety or recovery cool. You know, there's this sober curious movement out there. Um, so with this magic wand, we came up with the idea of sober tailgates and music festivals, concerts and sporting events, and then a sober section inside the venue with half off tickets. Wow. So, that, so, so there's like a section inside the concert yes. and it's half off, but you, do you ever have someone who does that half off and then try and get, get around it? Well, we definitely get good seats. So we've negotiated really well and, um, we'll sell, you know, a couple hundred tickets. I mean, it's pretty amazing seeing 200, 250 people sit together for a baseball game sober. Um, and then we'll have people slide into our seats because we got good seats and we kind of self-police it. And it's pretty obvious. Um, and people have been very respectful once you tell them like, Hey, this is a sober section. They're like, Hey, sorry. And they get up and, um, and I just daughter- wondered if anybody who pays for your tickets decides to do that and then, and then drink anyway. I just curious. So I'm sure it's happened, meaning there's family members who come and it's a baseball game. And, you know, um, we've had 4,000 people come to 64 events wow. over the last three years. And That's awesome. It, it really is. And um, here are some of the locations we went in 2019 when we used to be able to go to events. Nice. Um, and some of the highlights were, you know, we did Dead and Company. We've done a bunch of Colorado stuff, but we also left Colorado. We did Penn State at Maryland. So we threw a sober tailgate and the University of Maryland gave us all these discounted seats. And Penn State has a collegiate recovery community. A fifth, and 15 of their kids came down and the nonprofit bought their tickets to the game. Oh, and wow. then Maryland had like 35 kids. So we had this killer tailgate. We had a big screen TV, tent, chairs, um, food. And uh, that's one of the times people were trying to come in to our section or to our tailgate beforehand because we had the big screen TV with the earlier games on. Okay, I got to stop you. We got Super Bowl in Tampa. I think that's next year. Are you going to be there? So if they allow us, yes. Okay. So what's the date? We're talking this coming February 2021? I think so. All right. You and okay. me are going to make this happen. Okay. Right? So yes. anyone who is on this uh, podcast, they can reach out to us. We'll have more details to follow. Yes. And I don't I don't know anybody that is connected with Super Bowl, but, um, you know, if I can find somebody, I'm going to reach out. I'm going to reach out to the Buccaneers. Right. Um, I don't know if they'll be playing, but it's in their backyard. So, um, so more probably, hoping they'll like, be playing. We don't always need tickets, right? We just right. love the tailgate and a big screen TV to watch the game. So sometimes um, that has been the case. So uh, we've done very high profile games like Notre Dame, Georgia, and we were not able to get any half off tickets, but we were able to throw a sober tailgate. And um, Steve just pointed out, because I forgot... Right? One of the guys we've had on the podcast twice, who is a good friend, who is, is, he is former Tampa Bay Buccaneer, Randy Grimes. All right. And if we don't know who to talk to, I'm going to find out from Randy who we should talk to. I'm going to see if we can help on this because I think it's super important what you're doing. Right. Well, 
right now with all the churches being closed and the relapse rate being taken off and we're so isolated, right? There has never been a time where it's been more important to be able to have some sober community. And I know we're all dying for it, um, you know. And you're I'm, doing something virtually, aren't you? So we, we have, and we are gonna continue it. So um, up until April 15th, we were rolling along. We had 200 people on New Year's Eve in a sober section for a Colorado Avalanche hockey game. Wow. Then we went across the street and there's this really fun music festival called Decadence. And I want to say it's like 10 to 15,000 people. And they had uh, all this EDM stuff. And we had a sober support tent inside of Decadence. Um, and we had a great time. We were there two nights. They gave us six tickets for our, our um, volunteers. Um, my daughter was a part of it. And she was sober on New Year's Eve up until midnight. And then at midnight, she gave me a kiss and said, all right, I'm no longer sober AF. And she took off with her friend. So um, I think she's got a very healthy relationship with alcohol. So she was 21 at the time also. Fair um, enough. Right. So I'm sorry. I, That's okay. And then, and then COVID hits and we were supposed to uh, bring a game ball out to a Nuggets game with the state's attorney general and a senator. So we had this coming out party that was really excited about and that gets canceled. And next thing I know, you know, everything is canceled that we do and we're all kind of stuck inside and we decided to do a virtual music festival. Um, and we hired, uh, I think 60 different DJs and bands and showed it over five days. And um, we, had 27,500 people watch this. Wow. Um, so it was totally amazing. Um, every single band said, thank you, Sobre F Entertainment, and welcome to the Safe Music Festival. It was on Twitch. Um, at one point, we were the most popular channel on Twitch, which is a big deal. Um, so we did that in May. And then we had a second one in June, and we had a third one in July. And we had a total of 40,000 people watch all three festivals and we had 130 bands. So, um, I mean, we had no idea what we were doing, but we were trying to create something and it was really cool. But I think people got burned out of watching music stuff on their phones, right? This summer we had um, a lot of civil unrest. Um, it just felt like people were no longer um, wanting to watch a... Uh, a music festival online and we wanted to get outside. So um, since then we're looking to restart the channel at the end of this month. So we'll have, instead of a three day, you know, 50 bands, we're going to have just two hours and probably have two or three different DJs. And then what we've done in between, we've stitched in a PSA from either Miss America or the state's attorney general um, SAMHSA or suicide prevention, just trying to figure out how do we um, help uh, the recovery community and, um, you know, anyone who's kind of stuck at home. Yeah. And, you know, I'm really glad to hear that you're looking to start up your virtual events again, because that we're heading into the holidays and the holidays we know from past podcasts that we've done are some of the most stressful 
not only for you and me, but for people who, <clears throat> excuse me, who are addicted or who have loved ones who are addicted, most stressful time of the year, hands down, and you bring into that mix the quarantine and COVID. I hesitate to mention the election. This is a non-political podcast, right. but just the stress that's out there. I think if you guys can start up your virtual events again, I think it's huge because I think it's going to be needed really now more than ever. Yeah, it really is. And I mean, we kind of went through a little lockdown in March, was it March, March and April um, as a society, like, and if it kicks back to that level, um, especially like with snow on the ground and people just miserable, um, I am really concerned about our community. So, um, and the cool thing about virtual, I mean, there's a lot of cool aspects to it and there's some not so cool aspects to it, right? You don't get the same kind of connection that, you know, if you're at a music festival with 10,000 people and you all get along, like that's a pretty powerful thing. But um, virtually you can be anywhere. And, you know, we've had people from uh, all over the globe watching our music festivals and hearing, you know, 130 different uh, artists say the word sober was interesting, right? Some of them, you could tell it rolled off their tongue and other ones were like, they had never <laughs> said the word before. So, um, uh, yeah, so that's the goal. Our website is soberafe.com. Um, the website for the music festival is safemusicfestival.com. Um, okay, so soberafe.com is your website and then yes. safe music festival okay dot com um is the is uh the website that we're you can click on and you go right to twitch which is the our safe music festival is what we hosted on twitch um so ideally what what this movement is going to be is a national do-it-yourself sober tailgate movement where we host about 30 blowout events over the country, but we want ambassadors to go to the website, sign up, we'll send them a box, and it'll have balloons and t-shirts and um, kind of a policy and procedure, what to do if something happens, and people can host their own sober tailgates. Oh, and that's then, awesome. So I could like have 25 people come to my house and, and we can watch what you do virtually, but we can all be sober in a group. I think that's awesome. And you could even do like a Buccaneers game. So if you want to do a Tampa Bucks versus Steelers game and nobody's hosting it, you can go to the website, say, I would, you know, this is the three people we're going to host it. We're going to be parking lot. Uh, G and look for the yellow balloons because that's what Warfrats have used and that's kind of the international sign of like a recovery at a music festival. If you see yellow balloons, that's usually uh, a sober sign. I didn't know that. Okay, yellow balloons. All yes. right. Uh, you know what you're doing? I just I think is absolutely brilliant. Are you just doing this full time now? This is your total gig. Correct. So I am doing this full time. Been doing it full time for a little over two and a half years. We've got a little grant money. Um, I shouldn't say little. We've got grant money that really supports the cause. We're looking for more. Um, ideally, I mean, this should be a, a reality TV show with a RV driving all over the country at different music festivals and at different concerts and at different sporting events. 
where we drive into a town and we host a sober tailgate and everyone can learn about it. Um, yep. And so we need to help you buy an RV. Is that the deal? We need everybody to go and donate and help you buy an RV so you can be at Super Bowl yes. next time. <laughs> so, I mean, we've tried to see if there's any uh, sponsorship money. You know, um, typically people are like, hey, that's really cute. You know, let us know when you have 400,000 people following you. So it's definitely um, a learning experience. Um, and how do we take this movement? that's a nonprofit and to be able to um, find a niche and then um, make the need a wanted need. And once then, you know, I think, I think it will come. So, I mean, the amazing thing to me is like, I'll be on an airplane and the flight attendant will tell me she's heard of Sobre F Entertainment. And I'm like, probably not us, but go ahead. And then she tells me all about it. And it was us. Right. And she's from a different state and she wanted to quit drinking, but she thought life would be over. And one of her friends emailed her an article about us. Like, and I think of everyone who has been, there's another hundred or another thousand have heard about us. And to your point yep. earlier, like, I mean, we were at UCLA, USC. We were at, you know, we've been on East Coast, West Coast. We were at the Iron Bowl, Alabama versus Auburn. We were at the world's largest outdoor cocktail party, which was Georgia, Florida. Um, I mentioned the Notre Dame at Georgia game. Um, and we haven't really run across anybody else who does both sporting events and music festivals. So um, I just think it's amazing. I think it is huge. And you're so creative. You came up with a completely different way to help address this whole situation and really if i can evaluate for you you're making Please. sobriety popular yes. and fun and i think that that has to be done you know there's one thing to you know have a full-on education prevention treatment um, attack if you will on addiction needed but how about making sobriety the thing to do and the thing to be? And I, I, I think that's wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. I cannot thank you enough for being willing to tell us your story. You had a bunch of firsts for right. us. Yes. And yeah. And, you know, and, and really from the bottom of my heart, thank you for what you and your kids and your family, what you're doing with sober af entertainment nailed it i have to say it many times sober yes. af entertainment yes duke thank you again so much for taking the time and being on the podcast today i cannot thank you enough well i think this is like a no smoking section 30 years ago right it's this crazy idea but you know 15 years from now you'll be able to buy a ticket it's like you want to be in the sober section or the non-sober section and it seems crazy, but I think at some point um, we're, as a society, going to kind of make that jump that shark and, and realize that, you know, we all want to stay healthy and be away from whiskey drunk guy. I'd be willing to pay a $2 premium to stay away from him. I think you're right. Awesome. Thank right. you again so much, Duke. Awesome. I sincerely hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. I know that whoever you are, you're dealing with your own issues. 
and we are here to provide hope and help. And what I love about what Duke Rumley and his family are doing is that they are basically making it okay and fun to be sober. And I think that that's huge. If you would like to host your own sober tailgate party, you can reach out to Sober AF Entertainment and they will send you a package and you can register and you can do this. And it needs to be done across the country, if not across the world. So the website, once again, is Sober AF like Frank, SoberAFE.com, and then SafeMusicFestival.com. And reach out to them, and let's get this sober movement going. Let's just start it, okay? We'll be back again next week. We'll have an interview. Please, if you or someone you know needs to get into treatment, please do it now. We'll talk to you again. Stay safe. You have been listening to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, sponsored by Narcanon Ojai. For more information on Narcanon Ojai, call 866-231-5924 or visit www.narcanonojai.org. Narcanon is a non-12-step rehabilitation program based on the works of L. Ron Hubbard.